First of all, this, this morning, take your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19. And we're going to read our text this morning to begin with, and then we'll get into the message. Matthew chapter 19, beginning in verse 1. And it came to pass that when Jesus had finished these sayings, he departed from Galilee and came unto the coast of Judea beyond Jordan. And great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. The Pharisees also came unto him, tempting him, and saying unto him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? And he answered and said unto them, Have ye not read that he which made them at the beginning made him male and female, and said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. Wherefore they are no more twain, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let, man, let not man put asunder. They say unto him, Why did Moses then command to give a writing of divorcement, and to put her away? He saith unto them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, suffered you to put away your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say unto you, Whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, shall marry another, committeth adultery, and whoso marrieth her which is put away, doth commit adultery. His disciples say unto him, If the case of the man be so with his wife, it is not good to marry. But he said unto them, All men cannot receive this saying, save they to whom it is given. For there are some eunuchs which were so born from their mother's womb, and they are some, there are some eunuchs which were made eunuchs of men, and there were eunuchs which have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He that is able to receive it, let him receive it. Now this morning, I'm beginning the first of really kind of a mini-series within our study here of Matthew. I could have just uh, given you one message, maybe two, on this particular passage. But uh, this is what I would consider one of the tough issues. And for that reason, I feel it best to spend some time with this subject to give a thorough study instead of just a quick look. Now, we've already talked about this subject a little bit. If you can remember way back to Matthew chapter 5 which is also related to this passage. But our society is plagued with this thing called divorce. Many of you today are here today have either been divorced or are from homes that were broken by divorce. And the burden on my heart this morning is that someday it would be very well, that it could be very well that you will be affected by divorce procedure, either involving yourself or one of your children or your grandchildren for the first time or for another time. But as your pastor, 
it grieves my heart to think that even though you sat under the preaching of God's Word here at Spooner Baptist Church, you might wind up in the middle of strife and bitterness and the breakup of a marriage. Now, it's no small thing when I say that I hate divorce. Because when I say that, I believe I'm in pretty good company. Since in Malachi chapter 2 and verse 16, it says there that God hates divorce. And I'll be preaching a message based on that passage later. But it does, does not say that God hates divorcees. God does not say that God hates those that get divorced. Because He doesn't hate you. He doesn't, it doesn't say He, uh, he hates the person who is divorced. God says he hates the tearing apart of the marriage institution. And if you've been divorced, God loves you. And I want you to know that I love you and the Lord as well. And so that is the first burden of my heart, that someone here today may someday be faced with divorce, whether it be for the first time or whether it be for another time. Really, my second burden is that there is so much misunderstanding about what the Bible says about marriage and divorce. Many Christians have been misled about this subject. People have been misled by even great preachers who have not properly interpreted God's word on this subject. They've been misled by preachers who wanted to excuse their own divorces by misapplying the principles of marriages taught in the Bible. And I hope that our preaching on this subject can make a difference in someone's life in this area. All too often, people have taken the world's advice instead of God's advice. They have taken the advice of psychologists and psychiatrists with all their humanistic thinking, and they have not examined what does God say about this subject. And I guess you could say I have a third burden about this subject matter, and that is that you will listen to everything I have to say about marriage and divorce before you disagree. As we go along in this series, there may be some things you say, well, I'm not so sure about that, Pastor. Well, listen to the whole story, if you will. You may say, well, I've never heard it taught that way. When talking to somebody about divorce one time, Someone says, I've never heard anybody say that before. Well, please listen with a willing and sensitive spirit and pray that God will give you discernment on what you're hearing. And please pray for me that I will properly give the Word of God on this subject. And don't sit here with your defenses up and say, well, you're not going to change my mind about divorce. You may say, I think that divorce is okay because Jesus said it was okay. Well, I want us to be very, very careful about what God calls the sacred institution of marriage. And I want, don't want to be necessarily the one that changes your mind. I want God to give you the mind about this. I want God, through His precious Word, to do the work in your heart, bring you to a biblical understanding of marriage and divorce. Now, I'm planning at least four, maybe five messages on this particular subject. So we're going to park here for a while, okay? 
That means we don't get through Matthew nearly as soon as we thought we would. But you you didn't think we would anyway, did you? But today we want to look at Christ's analogy of marriage, and that that is Christ's love for the church. And we've just got finished talking about the importance of church discipline in chapter 18. We talked about the Lord's formation of the local church, the institution of the local church in chapter 16. And so I think it's important that we realize here that Christ has an analogy of marriage, and that is his love for the church. And we're going to be looking at some specific passages of Scripture that describe what Christ's love is like. Is there any room in Christ's analogy for divorce? Uh, as we go through these messages, it's interesting that as I looked at the calendar, this may take us just past Valentine's Day. What an appropriate uh, subject matter for Valentine's Day. Marriage and divorce. What, a, what is sacred about this institution of marriage? I trust that it will help those who may not be divorced and those who already are divorced. So you might not again divorce, or so your children and grandchildren will not divorce. Now, we need to realize that preaching on this subject can be very dangerous. In approximately A.D. 29, Herod Antipas made a visit to his brother Philip's area of rule, and there he fell in love with Philip's wife, whose name was Herodias. And it's interesting that Herodias was also Herod's niece. So, this was just a little bit strange. It sounds like some of the soap operas that we watch, or I hope you don't watch them, some of the soap operas that are on television. But here is Herod, who falls in love with Herodias, and they decide to get married. And the stipulation of Herodias was that Herod had to divorce his wife. And so Herod divorces his wife, and Herodias marries Uncle Harry. And as a result, there's quite a discussion among these people about this situation, and it's recorded for us, and we looked at it back in Matthew chapter 14, and what John the Baptist said about it. By the way, I appreciate it when I hear a preacher who's bold enough to preach against sin. I trust you do as well. But notice what John the Baptist said in Matthew 14, 4. He said, it is not lawful for thee to have her. As a result, that John the Baptist was arrested, he was put into prison, and that wasn't enough for Herodias, that John the Baptist just be put in prison. So preying on Herod's tendency toward lust, Herodias had her beautiful young daughter go and dance before Herod, and in the course of this sensual dance, Herod was so enamored with what he saw that he promised her that she could have whatever she wanted. At her instruction, at the instruction of her mother, she requested that John the Baptist be beheaded, and his head presented to her on a platter just because John the Baptist preached on divorce. It's dangerous. It can be dangerous to preach on divorce. And I'm not trying to be silly about it. I'm serious because there is an incredible controversy about this subject, and there's a great deal of division among God's people. Again, my burden is that we examine this subject very seriously, and if You've never been married or divorced. You determine by God's word that your marriage is for keeps. 
Now, we're going to look at other passages of Scripture, so we need to turn to the book of Ephesians. And this will be one of our commentaries on the passage that we're studying here in Matthew. Turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, and we're going to look beginning at verse 22. And we'll look at the analogy of marriage and the church. Now remember, Paul's writing to a local church, and he's giving this analogy here. Beginning in verse 22, he says, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself, for no man ever yet hateth his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body and of his flesh and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. Notice that God ties this in with marriage. In verse 31, he says, For this cause. And then in verse 32, he says, This is a great mystery. What's a great mystery? Actually, marriage. Well, we all knew that, didn't we? It's a great mystery. And here, God ties the analogy of Christ's love that is often taken for granted for the, the church to marriage. And can you think of any higher standard than the standard of Christ's love for the church to marriage? There is no higher standard. And because of that, it is my, understand, my understanding that if this is such a high standard, that there is never a place for divorce. Now I realize that's a harder line than you may have ever heard before. But again, hear me out about this. Someone might say, well, Jesus said it was okay if there was fornication. No, Jesus really didn't say that. And don't get ahead of me. We're not going to talk about that today, okay? Just hear me out. God did not institute divorce. Now, through Moses, God regulated divorce. But at the same time, God never instituted slavery but through the Apostle Paul, God regulated slavery. God brought it in control. So in God's Word, we see that God did institute marriage. We'll never wipe out divorce. I realize that even my preaching this will never uh, wipe it out. There's, as long as we uh, live, there's always going to be someone that's going to get a divorce. As long as there's sin, there's going to be a divorce. As long as there's going to be lust and selfishness, there's going to be divorce. 
So I'm not trying to tell you this morning that by preaching four or five messages on divorce, we're going to get rid of it. No, that's not going to happen, but we must understand what God's Word says about the institution of marriage. Now back in Genesis chapter 2, and you don't have to turn there, we're given four arguments against divorce. These same four arguments are repeated in Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. And this is the same setting of Christ's teaching here in Matthew chapter 19. So if you want to study this subject, study those passages together. Genesis chapter 2, Mark chapter 10, Matthew chapter 19. And again, I remind you, the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. Because you're going to find, there are going to be those commentaries on Matthew or on this subject, they're not, going to dis, they're not going to agree with what we're going to say here. They're going to, you'll find, I have in fact a two-volume set of books about a, a pastor who said okay to get a divorce. That way he could get a divorce, and so it was okay. And so he twisted scripture to where he could get a divorce. Now I believe this analogy that we have here in Ephesians chapter 5 gives us two important reasons why Divorce should never be a part of your life. Well, what are they? Well, first of all, there's the high view of marriage. The high view. And I want you to notice me, five arguments against divorce that makes God's view the high view of marriage. Number one, God's plan is for a monogamous marriage. God's plan is for a monogamous marriage. If we're going to have a high view of marriage... That is consistent with the analogy of Christ's love for the church, then we must realize it is God's plan for a monogamous marriage. God's ideal is for one man and one woman for life. And although we have much evidence in the scripture of marriages that were polygamous, we understand that none of these marriages were happy marriages. You'll find many Bible leaders and Bible characters that had multiplied wives, but you will not find one time where it was a happy home. God's plan is for a monogamous marriage, one man, one woman for life. And that's consistent with the high view of marriage that's consistent with the analogy of Christ's love for the church. Another argument would be God's plan for marriage is heterosexual by design. God's plan for marriage is heterosexual by, marriage, or by design. The Bible tells us that God made Eve for Adam. It was monogamous in that God made Eve for Adam. God did not make Eve, Sandy, Kathy, Helen, and Joanne for Adam. He made Eve, one woman for one man. But it's also heterosexual by design in that God made the woman from the man. Our culture will never stand on the high side of marriage. And it's sad that our former, uh, some of our former leaders and, uh, wrote books and, and basically said, well, marriage is between two people that love each other. It could be two men who love each other or two women who love each other, whatever. No, that's not what the Bible teaches. 
In the Bible view of marriage, that is the high view of marriage, it is first of all monogamous by design, secondly it's heterosexual by design, and this design protects from disease and from heartache. This design elevates the woman higher than any societal or feminist movement combined could ever achieve. Thirdly, God's plan for marriage is to be independent from interference of others. Independent from interference of others. I want you to again notice what it says here in verse 31 of Ephesians chapter 5. It says, For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. God's word specifically calls for the leave and cleave principle to be followed. This is not the only place uh, this is found. It's found in Genesis. It's found also in Matthew chapter 19. By so doing this, the sanctity of marriage relationship is again elevated. God's word calls for the woman to come under the headship of her husband, and it further calls for the man to leave and to sever the ties of his parents. And this separation, whether or while it is scriptural, is not typical seen in the cultures of our world. There are a lot of cultures where a man gets married and he brings his wife home and they live together under mom and dad's roof or grandpa and grandma's roof and there are several generations living together. That may be a cultural design, but that's not a biblical design. Notice with me the biblical design of leaving. Now I'm thankful that my parents purposely raised me to be independent. My parents never intended that I be under their care all of my life. My parents taught me it was important to get a job, to take responsibility, to take care of my own life. And yes, they were there when I needed them to help, but they never intended me to live depending upon them for the rest of my life. And I believe that was all for the purpose that I would leave the home and cleave to the one I married and I would establish my own home. So first of all, there's a leaving. Bye mom, bye dad. And cleaving is the second part and it cannot take place until there is a leaving. Now once the leaving takes place, then comes the cleaving principle. Cleaving, literally in Genesis 2 and Ephesians 5, is a concept of being glued together. Now, I've given you a couple of pictures there to illustrate this, but these are actually... Most of you know what what happens when you make some, some kinds of building materials. You see all the different layers there? Those are all glued together. And that's what this word actually means, this cleaving. It means to be glued together, like laminating beams together. They take two or more pieces of wood, laminate them together, and they become a strong bond together. It's a picture that God has for marriage. Let me ask you a question. Can you take this wood and tear it apart? The answer is yes. You can tear it apart. But it almost never, and I would say never because it depends on the strength of the glue. It never comes apart when it is glued. 
And if you try to tear it apart, if you try to separate this, you know what happens? You have two pieces. And these two pieces become sad shape. This was a piece just like that other one. I, I was able to get it apart. But if you would be able to look at it very closely here, it's, it's greatly marred. It's torn apart. If you try to tear apart laminated wood, you'll find the wood grain will tear. And if you have two pieces, the two pieces will be in sad shape. That's what divorce does. Oh yes, you can take two lives that have been bonded together by the institution of marriage and you can separate them, but they do not come out of it whole. They come out of it damaged and scarred for life. And so God's word, first of all, teaches us the leave principle. Secondly, it teaches us the cleaving principle. Cleaving cannot take place until the leaving has occurred. And in that cleaving, by God's design, it results in the one flesh principle. The one flesh principle. That brings us to another argument against divorce. God's plan for marriage is that it be a monogamous marriage. It's heterosexual by design. It's to be independent from interference by others. And then fourthly, it is to be a one flesh relationship. Actually, some would call this first the leaving, the cleaving, and this is the weaving. After calling one to leave, when God calls for them to cleave, the grammar here is that they're glued together. It's impossible for the cleaving principle to occur until the husband and wife accomplish that leaving stage. With that separation comes the honor of cleaving element, and the ultimate expression of cleaving is found in the physical union enjoyed by the bonds and bounds of marriage. And listen very carefully, this is a sacred union, and is so sacred that any physical union outside the bounds of marriage shatters the trust and the blessing of the marriage union. This one flesh relationship goes far beyond a physical relationship, though. And when children are born to this marriage, the child carries the features of both father and mother in one body. The sanctity and the privilege of the one flesh relationship is that which reveals God's high design for marriage. And then there's a fifth argument that does not appear in Genesis chapter 2, but it does surface Back here in Matthew chapter 19, it, you see it in Mark chapter 10. You also see it in, here in Ephesians chapter 5. Taking the high view of marriage, it is God who joins a man and a woman together. It is God. That's why it says in Matthew 19 and Mark chapter 10, Where, what, Therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. It's what God has joined together. It's not fate. It's not a dating service. It's not personal ads in some paper. It's not what a matchmaker has accomplished. It's not what some scheme that mom and dad worked out. Nor is it reality TV. Some time back I saw a mother and a daughter interviewed on the early news program about the situation the mother had came up with where they were in inviting young men to her home to interview them possible candidates for marriage to their daughter. 
even had chairs set up in the yard for the candidates to sit in and fill out a questionnaire, write in an essay and wait for, to be interviewed by a panel of judges set up in the, by the mom. I think the news anchor asked the daughter, says, do you think you can find true love in this yard sale type of setup by your mother? It's ridiculous. You see, therefore what God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. Those are very strong words. It's a very strong picture here in God's Word. It's a picture where God takes credit for your marriage. I'm thankful for 43 years that I can rejoice that God brought my wife and me together. You can always look at the human factors. She was good looking and still is. Uh, she knew everything about me since she had dated all my, her friends, or I had dated all her friends before I dated her. By the way, I saved the best for last. But it was God who brought us together. Just like Christ and the church. No one seeks after the Lord. Romans 3 makes that very, very clear. No one ever wakes up one day and says, you know, I think I'm going to get saved today. No one ever gets saved until there's a unique work of the Spirit of God preparing and drawing that person to Christ, and Christ takes the responsibility for our relationship to Him. And that's the same view of marriage. God brought you together. God takes the responsibility. God takes the credit. He has joined us together. Therefore, man ought not to tear it apart. Man ought not to tear it apart. I had to take a screwdriver and a hammer to get these two things apart. So following the analogy of Christ and his love for the church, we see his analogy provides us a very high view of marriage. But secondly, there's a positive view, the positive view. The marriage union is a wonderful, sacred, Christ-honoring union. And although the world would have us to think that, you know, marriage is really akin to like slavery or drudgery, Scripture paints a very different picture. Of all the analogies available, none could be more powerful than the analogy of Christ and His love for the church. Marriage is not just a signing over to a a slavery situation. Marriage is not to be drudgery or boredom. Marriage is akin to the love that Christ has for each one of us. And it's viewed in a positive way because of three reasons this morning. Number one, marriage illustrates the headship of Christ. We won't go back and reread the verses, but in verses 22 through 24 here in Ephesians 5, Christ likens the submission of a wife to her husband and to the submission of the church to Jesus Christ in everything. Now it's interesting because when you find an analogy there is some point where it seems like the analogy breaks down, and so God's Word foresaw that. And that's why in verse 23, the Bible makes a difference in the husband and Christ by referring to Christ as the Savior of the church. Not only is He head, but He is Savior. Now, 
husbands, we are not the saviors of our wives. We are, according to God's word, the head of our wife. So the analogy is so important that God's word declares where the analogy might not apply. And so the view here is that the part of analogy that applies is the role of the headship of the husband. Ladies, that role does not assign you to a second-class role. Submission here, as it talks about in Ephesians chapter 5, is not slavery. Submission is not demeaning. Submission is protection. Submission means that you bring yourself under the established headship that God has ordained. Now, the husband is to be in submission as well, of course. He does... He too has to submit to headship. And whose headship is that? That's the headship of Jesus Christ. And so the husband submits to Jesus Christ. The wife submits to her husband. And the children submit to their parents. And in viewing this description of marriage, we see a beautiful picture of protection and of nurture and of guidance and of leadership that God has given to us. Marriage illustrates the headship of Christ. Secondly, it illustrates agape love. Agape love. In verse 25, it says, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church. The word there, God's word, is clearly using the agape term. That's the Greek term for this kind of love. Husbands are commanded to love their wives. It's interesting that wives are not commanded to love their husbands. That evidently is not the problem for wives. Submission is the problem. But according to this passage, it indicates that the husband's greatest need is the need to love his wife. The love referred to in this passage is an agape love. Agape love is unconditional, sacrificial love. That love is precisely the nature of Christ's love for us. This love is the highest form of love that exists. That is the role that God has called us who are husbands and those of us who are fathers because of the design of the context here. And the chapter 6 speaks of the relationship of the father and of the children. God has commanded that the husband model this agape love. And so what is the positive view that comes from this analogy of Christ's love for the church? It's the positive view because marriage illustrates the headship of Christ and it illustrates the agape love of Jesus Christ for the church. And then thirdly, marriage illustrates the permanent relationship of Christ's love. The permanent relationship of Christ's love. This is key to the whole passage. While man may view marriage as only permanent as goodwill may provide, the Bible pictures marriage as permanent as Christ's love. What do we know about the love of Christ? In John chapter 10 and verse 28 and 29, it says, And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I'm so thankful for that passage of Scripture. I don't have to worry about losing my salvation or anyone taking away my salvation. When Jesus establishes a relationship with us, it is a protected, permanent relationship. 
Notice Romans chapter 8, verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, can you think of a higher view of marriage than that of God's word? Marriage is an illustration of God's love. It's permanent. It's a permanent relationship. And we can thank God for that. I'm so thankful that God, uh, uh, when I trusted Christ as my Savior, it wasn't like, until I make a mistake. It wasn't until I sin that He's going to save me. He saved me and it was permanent. And that's the way we should think about our relationship of marriage. It's a permanent relationship. Ought to be the goal as we think about the future in the relationship to our present marriage or for those who are not yet married, who are considering God's will for your life in this area. For 43 years, my wife and I have grown together. We've had our share of times of difficulty. We've had times when we have disagreed strongly about things. We've had our times when our worlds collided rather than conveniently work together. But at no point in those 43 years was divorce remotely an option. Murder maybe, but not not divorce. (laughs) Now we determined that before we even knew each other. We said marriage is for keeps. And my prayer is that God will fix that in your mind And that he will reinforce that in your minds with the analogy that he chose. This isn't something I came up with. I think, well, how can I compare? No, this is the analogy God has given to us. The analogy of Christ's love for each and every one of you. Now, I know what some of you might be thinking. You're saying, but but, but, pastor, what about... Well, let's just say this right now. Take care of what God has said to you this morning and meditate upon these things and ask God to help you understand what he's saying through this particular message and these particular passages of Scripture. God wants us to have a high view of marriage and he wants us to have a positive view of marriage. Let's bow our heads in prayer.